I'm Nick Turzo, and you are listening to The Radical. Today I'm joined by another Austin musician. She and her band create records with a blend of many different styles and sonic landscapes. The band continues to build a large following and will be playing this year's ACL Festival. Heartless Bastard singer-songwriter Erica Wennerstrom joins me to discuss songwriting, her new record, A Beautiful Life, and getting beyond shyness as a performer. Coming up, my conversation with Erica Wennerstrom. Hi, Erica. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Glad to be here. I'm happy to speak to another person here in Austin now that the shows were kind of based here now. So I'm kind of uh, very curious to speak to everyone in the Austin community as far as musicians. So thank you. Yeah. Well, You're number two, I think. So. Um, so you have a new record um, coming out this month um, called A Beautiful Life. Is that the name of it? Yes. Uh-huh. Awesome. Awesome. And when did you, uh, did you record this, uh, prior to the pandemic during the pandemic? I finished it March 1st of 2020. So it was just kind of right before things were shutting down. Um, yeah, I'm glad I was able to, uh, yeah, complete that. It would have been, uh, quite a, I mean, I, I know people have done that, but just organizing everything and getting musicians in and everything. So, yeah. Yeah, because it looks like you have quite a few guest players, musicians, singers. I mean, it's quite an out uh, kind of an undertaking on your ha- behalf. So so this was yeah. all done in physically in a place. Yeah, yeah. My first string quartet. <laughs> uh, so awesome. It's definitely ambitious. So, and it has like many different styles. So you're kind of doing a lot of different things stylistically, which is fascinating. I just am very much inspired by so many different types of music and music from different cultures and um, just finding ways to put it together that also fit within rock and roll and just sort of an Americana. And yeah. It was very fun to experiment and explore. Yeah. Well, tell me some of the... So let me try to understand the band a little bit because I think of you and then I think of a band and then um, this record, there's so many other players Then I'm thinking, well, is Erica the band too? Are you the heartless bastard or is there others that are a permanent part of the band? Um, you know, I'm, I am now, uh, starting my third iteration. I, I started the band in Cincinnati, um, in 2004. Um, and, uh, my boyfriend played bass, Mike Lamping at the time. And we were together about 10 years. And when we split, I'm, I moved to Austin and I started over, um, and, I had session musicians on the mountain, and then I formed a new live band uh, from old friends from Ohio, actually, and um, and um, we toured. We did two albums together, but we toured for three album cycles and and worked together for about ten years. But 
we took we toured pretty heavy for about ten, I guess it was about eight years or or so. And um, when we uh, we decided to take a, a hiatus, and then I got really inspired, and I you know I love my team, so I thought, oh, I just got really inspired, and I'm going to do this album under my name, and and so um, I I did Sweet Unknown. And then um, just the timing's not lining up, but I, you know, I I reach so much more people with the band name, and I I realize it's it's always been my thing. I write the songs, and I just didn't feel like it was fair to myself to sort of wait until everybody's timing perfectly lined up with with this material because I think it's a message that people need, and and the band name has a lot more reach. Um, yeah. Mm, that makes sense. And so who are, why don't you share with me who some of the players are on this or people that have contributed from other bands and, uh, how they contributed? Well, yeah. On the album, um, I had, uh, Gregory Clifford played drums. He's in the band white denim or was in the band white denim. And, um, I had uh, Bo, uh, Car- I, don't, I don't know how to say his last name, Coster, C- C- uh, it's K-O-S-T-E-R, uh, from My Morning Jacket. He played keys. Uh, and also uh, Jesse um, from Midlake. I'm blanking on people's last names right now. But Jesse from Midlake. Um, uh, and he also plays in Mercury Rev. Uh, did some keys as well. And he just, he did this like, entire woodwind section of layers on uh the song doesn't matter now in like an hour i was like i call it the disney part uh you know there's a part of that song that's kind of inspired by bambi i just picture like bambi and like little butterflies fluttering around he does these little flute flutters you know i i uh a lot of this album is a bit getting in touch with my inner child and and you know, that sort of time where things don't seem impossible or you sort of like practically talk your, yourself out of whatever it is, you know. And um, let's see who else. I had Lauren Grigiolo, who's played with me for years, and she was in the band Ockerville River. Um, and David Polkingham, who's um, played with Patty Griffin for years. He did some amazing just beautiful guitar parts and um gosh I, oh Andrew Bird is a guest on there and he just I mean he is just otherworldly I just it's like he's from another planet uh um, one song with you or did he do a few songs uh he did one uh he it's uh he does like a subtle part in the beginning of the song, the river, and then he just lets loose at the end of it. And it was kind of like my sort of, uh, let's see. Well, the song Baba O'Reilly, it's my sort of, uh, you know, I love at the end of that song, how there's this, all of a sudden the whole vibe of the song changes. And then it goes into this sort of gypsy fiddle part so it's it the song is very different than that but um but it's sort of the whole the vibe changes in the song a bit and uh i mean the entrance of the song is my friend uh Farid Shanafuri who plays this beautiful persian sitar part 
uh, which is different than the Indian sitar. They're spelled different. They're completely different instruments. Um, and uh, gosh, I'm like, I'm sure I'm missing people. I had, but I had a wonderful cast of of folks. Yeah, that's great. Oh, yep. and Jesse, Jesse from the who's been in the band for like the last uh, eight or ten years or so. He played on my solo record too, and he's not going to be in the touring band, but he did join me live. So, or I mean, he joined me on the record. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. No, that was the, kind of the one word I was going to ascribe to some of this that I had listened to was like kind of whimsical. Um, yeah. That's what it felt like in a lot of, a lot of the songs kind of fit that. So, um, so you're definitely playing with that. The interesting part though, too, is like you have a song called How Low and it's kind of interesting because it's seemed a little prescient to kind of where we are today, you know, and it's obviously was written a little, you know, pre uh, pandemic, it feels like, but it kind of summarizes, I don't know, our condition today a little bit. I mean, that song is a bit of my, it's like my frustration with, uh, the sort of excessive capitalism, you know, I, I, uh, I, I just think the planet can't sustain the rate of consumption. And, and I think that we have, the capabilities to to make products that biodegrade and and things that would be much more sustainable for our planet and our species but uh there are it's just the system isn't create you know i feel like we almost our government needs to give subsidies to biodegradable rather than oil you know oil makes plastics and you know, I mean, God, I heard this NPR thing about like excessive plastics in your system. Uh, if it's in the placenta, it's actually it's the there's scientific evidence that uh, boys will have uh, low fertility. It's like we're just gonna wipe ourselves out as a species. We have to like do something about it or kind of at a critical mass on that. And, um, a lot of that song, it's just kind of, I think it's a question that we should even ask ourselves. Like when, you know, what, what is our, what, what are our, what, what is our, where is our moral compass at? And when we make decisions on, uh, how we affect others, you know, uh, and at what point when we're working towards something for ourselves, if we can negatively affect others, we need to check in on that, you know? And, uh, so it's not really meant to point fingers. It's just a question that I think we all need to ask ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, I, Native Americans have this, you know, the seven generations and they think about the actions that they do, how they affect seven generations of people. And I'm just, I mean, it's hard to even go beyond like the uh, gen grandchildren generation at this point, you know, and I, uh, yeah. So I don't know. It's a bit of a frustration song. Uh, and it's really ultimately just, about loving one another and kind of trying to look at really kind of what what is 
most important. Yeah. Or what I think is. (laughs) so it did somewhat address the world condition but it was interesting that it came you know at a time while we're in the middle of a pandemic too which is the greatest you know it turns into quite a mass extinction event um it's heading in that direction anyway um so are you planning i mean uh, coupled with that are you planning touring then in this environment i mean can you guys go out and you have dates on the books i assume yeah, we have a tour that starts in, gosh, three weeks or maybe even a few days less than that. I, um, You know, when we went forth with the tour, uh, the breakthrough case wasn't a thing uh, at that point. So it felt like a fine call to sort of go forward. And, uh, you know, I think that... Uh, we're going to continue forth, but implement some sort of protocols in the venues and, and we're working with the venues and doing our best to, you know, if this is the new normal, we're going to have to figure out how best to, to adapt. Um, it's been really interesting. I just, as a musician, I've never imagined a few years ago being in this position where, you know, I got some, I get once in a while I'll get like a nasty message. I got some really nasty message yesterday from somebody saying that the venue in Columbia has introduced like these COVID protocols. And I don't know, I was actually really kind and patient. I, I, I took the time and I responded and I said, you know, I said, these are protocols, but they're not forced vaccination, you know, or, uh, certainly not forced because it's a rock concert. You don't have to go, but you know, a negative test is like, seems like, a, you know, a reasonable thing right now. You know, um, I, 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 I think that's even for their own protection, knowing that other folks, you know, and it, and I think with breakthrough cases, it's something where we're going to have to keep distance or folks mask up or, you know, we're, I, I don't know. We're just, I'm saying we're as in just, musicians in general as a whole, I think we're all just doing the best that we can to figure out how to make this work. And uh, the venom here and there, you know, and sometimes it's easy to remember the venom when I think the reality is most people are pretty supportive of, of these protocols and understanding it. You know, I but if one of us gets sick, we're gonna have to shut it down. And then the you know, and and really, there's no unemployment for for musicians. Um, it, there's no un- unemployment for the self-employed. You know, so um, we, we just we're we're you know. I mean, maybe that's a question I have to ask myself. How low will you know? Like, at what point does making money like override uh, you know keeping people safe? But we're just sort of going to do our best to sort of find how to, how to do that. But is that burden really on each individual artist or is it the venues kind of taking the lead on protocols that they're enforcing or does the artist have something in their riders or whatever in their contracts saying, Hey, this is the way we're playing it. You know, I don't think it's uh, straight across the board. You know, I, I think in certain States or certain venues would, would have, happily insist upon it 
And then I think, I think that, um, it, it depends, you know, uh, and, but there are certain things that, um, you know, I think we have taken it upon, uh, having the venue set protocols, but I'm going to check in with my manager and see where that's at, because I also want to make sure that if there are some, you know, that have very lax, you know, wh what exactly are, are we getting into? And, and, you know, cause I, I think, you know, at this point, I, the, the band's vaccinated. Uh, and I feel like we all have a sense of comfort that we're um, less likely to be hospitalized, but it doesn't mean that our operation will get shut down for, you know, right. a week or so. And the tour is only three and a half weeks long. So, you know, I, I mean, the first leg, you know, right. so. And as part uh, of that, are you playing ACL? You're scheduled to play ACL uh, this year? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's still a green light at this point, right? Yeah, I think they've instituted some protocols and and it's outdoors too. And I think consistently the outdoors has been uh you know, the open air has been uh good as far as gatherings in some ways during this time, so. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Are you excited? Have you played before, I assume? Uh-huh, yeah. I uh I think I've played there three or four times. I don't even know anymore. You know, at this point, I think the band's almost 20 years old or something, you know? So. Yeah. It's incredible. It's interesting. You know, that's, I wanted to flip back in time for a minute because, you know, as an artist to be starting something like back then, like, you know, when the music business was kind of going through a transition and, you know, maybe at the beginning of your career at some of its lowest points, um, and maybe it didn't matter to you because you weren't playing their game necessarily, but it was definitely a different set of economics back then. Um, and no one knew what was going to happen in the music business. I mean, all they kept seeing was piracy and where's this going to go? So um, I don't know if there's a question there. I just think it was an interesting time as an artist to kind of start something based on... Um, I don't know what would I call it. Just the tides that seem to be going in a different direction back then. You know, I mean, it's still that way. I mean, I look at the music industry. It's it's kind of like consistently like the wild west. It's ever I you know I guess even though I've ha I guess I'm working on I, I'm about to release my seventh album, but I will say that every album I release there is something so different about the climate. You know, when I first released CDs were the big thing and piracy, but people were still buying a lot of CDs. Um, I actually like self personally self-pressed uh, my second album on vinyl because Fat Possum didn't think that it made sense to do vinyl. And, but I, so many people in my community that were music lovers were really getting in, or maybe not just getting into it, but just, you know, really s maintaining that interest of, of that format. And, uh, and then, um, and then vinyl just got bigger and bigger with each release. Um, now if stream Spotify, uh, when I released arrow, we played South by Southwest 
that year. And I remember we did one of those South by Southwest parties at the Spotify house. And it was like, what's this thing? You know, it was like the launch party or something like that, you know? And so, uh, within that three years, this, you know, streaming became such a huge thing. And I don't know, every kind of, even just, uh, yeah. I mean, there just seems to be these trends, um, that happen. Um, something works really well in promotion. That's my dog Piper. I don't know. There must be some kind of random bark in the neighborhood. Piper, come on. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, it's like almost like I can't keep up, you know? And, and it, it, I think in order to survive in the music industry in, in any form, whether you're a record label, a musician, uh, a manager, whatever it is, you have to kind of be adaptable and go with the flow because there's just not like the way things are done and then you get better and better and better at that way. You have to constantly be innovative and learn how to, how to, you know, adapt. And, uh, yeah, you know, the, there's a song in the album called the river. That's the one with Andrew bird and the Persian sitar from Fadid. And I mean, that whole song to me is just like about like the idea of adapting and sort of, you know, we're made of water and, uh, you know, or primarily. And, um, I, sometimes in my life, I feel like I'm swimming upstream, you know, and, but I, yeah, I just got to let go sometimes and go with the flow and, and just adapt and just be okay with whatever's coming at me and roll with the punches or whatever, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. No, you've seen a lot in 20 years. I mean, it's a definitely a different period. And, you know, the thing, uh, some of the things that are put on artists now, you know, especially with the social media part of it, you know, it's just was such a... Yeah, I'm a former A&R guy, so I find it a distraction for artists to have to spend so much time on that part of their lives um, rather than creating and writing. And I don't know. So I have a I have a kind of a bad view of it. But uh. yeah, I I do it sometimes. And I guess once in a while there's something I, I might have fun with the post. But to be honest, I'm although I'm I'm quite vocal in this podcast today. I've had a lot of coffee, but I, I, um, I'm just really introverted and the social media thing is very difficult for me because I'm just not, yeah, I, I'm just still after 20 years, I don't think that it, it, it gets easier for me to, to do stuff like that. I mean, I, I finally started talking a little more on stage. I mean, my first three albums, I got like, hi, how are you? And thank you for coming. And maybe one more sentence in there for the whole night. You know, I, I've stretched out a little, you know. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to see where you'll be in 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> so who are some of your like, kind of earlier influences on you musician wise or not even, you know, I don't know, art painters, uh, who influenced you as an artist? 
Um, well, I would say like from an early childhood, Shel Silverstein, I loved his sort of cadence of language. And I think I even mimicked that on some songs on my first album. Uh, he had this song, Ickle Me, Pickle Me, Tickle Me Too, Went for a Ride in a Flying Shoe. And I have this song called um, God, Pass and Fail. And I say, well, it's hard to predict in the end what you get if you're climbing a wall that is infinitely tall. And I felt like the the cadence is very Shel Silverstein uh, to me. Uh, um, and uh, I got into classic rock a lot when I was a young adult. I, I, I thought it seemed, I don't know, when you can hear it, every day on the radio uh when i was in high school it was uninteresting to me because it's just always there you know uh maybe i t took it for granted in some way but uh when i really started working on songcraft uh i was bartending uh, and and like when the levy breaks would come on the jukebox a lot and that song, I feel like there's aspects of that song that I mimic at least once on every album I do. Um, and so I would say Led Zeppelin's probably one of my favorite bands of all time. Um, yeah, tons of, and Bob Dylan is a huge influence on my life. My, my aunt, when I was a kid, would talk to me about Bob Dylan lyrics, which went completely over my head, you know. I, you know, she would be like, Erica, you hear that? It doesn't take a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. And I'm just like, you know, maybe like seven years old sitting in the passenger seat like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, and, and, and I, as a teenager, would go to a lot of Bob Dylan shows with her. And um, it just blows my mind, Charlie living here in Austin. And then we've become friends. I just, I don't know, I pinch myself. Like, uh, but I, um, I, uh, it made me consciously think about messages and lyrics and things where I was always gravitating to melody, but, um, knowing that my aunt was such more a lyrics person and would always talk to me about that. It made me realize I needed to do my best to sort of have both, you know, the melody and the lyrics. And I, I do my best with it, you know. <laughs> we all try we all try you're doing well so Thank you've made you. a career out of it i think you're doing quite well um in speaking to you you know i get a sense of uh you know your empathy and your sensitivity to kind of our world the environment we're in and i just find the irony of the band name um so is that kind of some kind of shield for you that when you came up with that name because you're clearly not a heartless bastard so I look back and I do think it was a bit of a shield. I was this sort of very awkward, introverted, young 20 year old. And, uh, but I had developed, um, I mean, I got really into punk rock and Joan Jett was also somebody that I just loved so much as a kid. I, I just thought, and I still do. She's just the coolest, you know? And, it was like Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, you know, and that I uh, got off work uh, at, at a bar I worked at in Dayton, Ohio. I lived in Cincinnati and I was commuting back there for a while. And um, I was doing one of those trivia games, those like bar top ones, and it had asked what Tom Petty's backing band was. 
and Tom Petty and the Heartless Bastards was the wrong answer. And we just laughed so hard. And I thought, man, that sounds really catchy and tough, like Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. And I, you know, and I mean, I've kind of gr grappled with that name over the last 10 years or so. You know, I, I used to think it was funny when I started the band. And once we had developed a following in Cincinnati, I would... Uh, be driving down the street and somebody would yell out the window, you heartless bastard. <laughs> and we'd just look at each other and laugh, you know, but I, you know, it's, I am, I'm 43 now and it's not a name I would choose now. Um, and when I did the solo album, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe I'll continue going on that, you know, but I, I don't know. With my solo album, I had worked with a lot of sort of facing my shadow a bit and and uh, working on sort of the whole self-love thing. And I, you know, I kind of realized it's it's just like kind of re-going forward with this, this name that uh, maybe it's a reminder to me to keep my sense of humor, you know? And it it's just, it's meant to be lighthearted, maybe. <laughs> And, um, yeah, and I, I think I'll reach more people with these songs and, and, uh, and, and I guess looking back with that, it's just like embracing m my whole self and my decisions I made 20 years ago and not having like regrets, just sort of acceptance of that's, that's what I chose. And I'm going to, I'm going to laugh my way through that, you know? So, Yeah. Sounds tough, so. It doesn't it? It sounds like tough and rock and roll and yeah, yeah. I like it. I like it. Well, thank, thank you. you for your time. I'm really grateful. It was nice to meet you. And uh, the record is A Beautiful Life. It's out now. It's um, it's a it's a really, really good record. I mean, and it covers a lot of ground stylistically. So it's very ambitious. Thank you. So congratulations. You. Thank you so much. I, I'm so, uh, I'm really proud of it and I'm so happy to be, you know, re releasing it and touring on it. Yeah. You should be. So, um, I hope to see you on the road and, uh, stay safe out there. You too. Yeah. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, Erica. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This show originates from the podcast capital, Austin, Texas. My producer is Sean O'Neill. Visit theradicalpot.com for updates and even some merchandise. Also, please subscribe at Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I also ask that you please share episodes with your friends so we can continue to grow our community. See you all again next Friday.